Good morning to all of you on this uh, warm, sunny Southern California day. It's a long weekend. We have our whole student ministries group are all gone on retreat. They had snow that was there. So I'm glad you should. I think only the good-looking people made it. To, I guess that's what I think who made it today. I'm glad each one of you is here. I want to introduce two people to you particularly. They're deep in my heart. We have with us this, um, this today Dr. Richard Averbeck and his wife, Melinda Dick. We're all the way over here. Um, you should stand so they can see you and welcome you. Um, Dick is a professor at, at, a, at a good school, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School back in Chicago, a professor of Old Testament, published so many things. And as we're dealing with Genesis and in an age of science, we wanted to have a, a time where you could talk about what does the Bible really allow for us and still be faithful to the Word to, to believe. And I thought that's a hard question. So I brought him in here so you can go to the luncheon afterwards and... Uh, be kind uh, that is there. But Dick and Melinda, thank you so much for being with us here today. Well, whether you've been here or not, uh, I'll just tell you this. When we left Adam and Eve last week, we left them in paradise. I mean, at the end of Genesis 2, everything was the way it's supposed to be. I mean, especially relationships were right. They had a right relationship with God. I mean, God was right there walking and talking with them, with not his unrestricted presence. He was there. Uh, they had a right relationship with this world that they were put in. They had a good job. They'd been made in God's image to be able to care for and rule over this wonderful good world that he had made. And they had a, a one, right relationship with one another, too. Uh, Adam wasn't alone anymore. Uh, he and Eve were one, and there was no shame. Well, look, listen to that. I just read that and I say, that's the way life's supposed to be. Don't you feel that way? That's the way it's supposed to be. And then we think about life the way it is here. And for most people, some people wonder if there is a God. Uh, those of us who know him sometimes feel like he's far away. The world we're supposed to be caring for is polluted and damaged in so many ways. And our human relationships, I mean, everywhere, our marriages and our families and our friendships and our work, they are broken and torn everywhere. What went wrong? That's what we're going to think about. Um, now, if, if we pull back, this is Genesis in the age of science. If you pull back to social sciences in the late 19th, early 20th century, most of the people that I read were saying that nothing really has gone wrong. Instead, they took the uh, processes of evolutionary biology and were applying them to cultural development and to moral development and saying, really, things have never been good, but it's just getting better and better and better. So that they said, look, the world is getting better and better. Governments are going to be better. Culture is going to be better. People are going to be better. And soon there will be, no there will be a utopia. Um, then came two world wars. And after those world wars were over, they saw that among the most educated and affluent culture of all, there had been genocide that had taken place with the killing of Jewish people. So now here we gather in the 21st century, and I'll tell you, there are few people you can find in or outside church who try to say that governments are less evil than they have been, and that people are more perfect than they have been. 
I mean, most of us come here today and we know that we human beings are as selfish and can be as brutal as any culture any time before. And we just know that at least human moral development is not just progressing on its own toward perfection. Does anybody agree with that? Uh, and here's the part you might not want to agree with. It's not just out there in the world. It's right here in our hearts. Um, there's something flawed about us as human beings. We may want to do what is good, but we seem to be unable to do it. Listen, you and I know that if we were put in a paradise like Adam and Eve were in, we would mess it up in a day. Can I have a witness? Anybody? Do you want to acknowledge this? We'd, we'd mess it up in a day. <clears throat> so as I look at it, it's not that we don't want to do what's right. We do. But it seems like even though we have a longing to do what's right, we're unable to do it. It's just like Romans 7. The Apostle Paul would say, the very things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Can I have a witness for that one? <laughs> don't we feel that? And we see how relevant this is. So today we come to the Bible's explanation for this strange blend of longing to be good but failing to be good that just seems to be in the human heart everywhere. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 3. Um, the story there written so long ago uh, is, is one that I think you're going to see is so real to life. It is so real to life. It's just like today. So I put it in my own words here. I said it's a story of two people who have it all. Good reputation, great job, great place to live, wonderful prospects for the future, and they throw it all away for a piece of fruit <laughs> or some such equivalent. I, I, I'm going to read this text to you now, and I want you to uh, see the process that happened there in the first six verses. I want you to investigate your own life, those times when you know you want to do good, a temptation comes and you end up doing what is wrong. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. I want to have you stand. Will you stand even now with me? Genesis chapter 3, and we'll just read in my part of the message. We'll take a few moments at the end of this to respond to it, and then Matt will close. But Genesis chapter 3, what takes place? Beginning with verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And this is the word of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I, I didn't know if you'd say thanks be to God, but, but you did. I want us to think, and I want you to think about your own process through times of temptation. I want you to see how for Eve and Adam, it seemed to start with what I call an atmosphere, an attitude in which temptation can thrive 
and come to fruition. You see it especially in that this phrase, the serpent said to the woman, did God really say? Uh, Tim Keller, the pastor back in New York City, calls the serpent's approach the sneer, <laughs> the sneer. He said it's sort of an attitude that he sees all the time in Manhattan where he serves. And I'm just telling you, we're not immune to it right here in Southern California either. Do you see it? Did you hear it as I tried to read the question, serpent's question, the tone of voice? Did God really say? What I want you to see is that the first sin began not so much just with an act of sin as with something that was sowing the seed an atmosphere in which they were going to give in to that temptation. So I'll put a picture of the serpent. Not that I think the serpent looked like this, looks like this, but, but I think Southern Californians, you like to see stuff, so look at that. Um, really scoffed the serpent. So you see, the serpent doesn't so much make a case against the wisdom of having a rule like this. No, he just mocked it. He wanted Eve and Adam to think that this rule was absolutely ridiculous. It's the kind of thing that I've seen so often, especially as our students go off to college. They get into a place, maybe in one of the universities, and from what they hear in their classes and the people who are around them, then they begin saying, you know, in my home, some of you are already nodding, in my home we said we shouldn't be doing this and we should do that, or, or, or we say... Um, my pastor preached a sermon that we shouldn't do this. This is one of, it goes against what God's word says. And, and the attitude comes back is, really? What a bunch of ignorant, out-of-date people they must be. And you begin thinking, if such smart people around you think that, you begin having that attitude sown within you. Maybe you think, well, I guess that's right. No rational, fun-loving, 21st century person would ever believe such stuff. Who came up with that? So here, here's the point I want to make to you. I want you to think about this. I think we so often question our confidence in the commands of God's Word. Not so much when people make good evidence against it or an argument against it, but much more through an atmosphere that we get to be a part of that makes the Bible's moral demands seem silly or out of date. Are you with me here? Do you know what I'm getting at? Well, let me just show it to you. Verses 2 and 3. Look at Eve. Eve first seemed to defend God. And, 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 she, and, and so this is what happened. No serpent. Uh, you're wrong. Uh, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not touch it or you will surely die. But that's not quite what God had said, is it? God had not said, you must not touch it. I keep asking myself, why, why did Eve add that to this short speech? And I, I begin to think, I don't want to just read into it, but I begin to think, was she resentful that something she really wanted to do, she was being kept from by somebody else? She couldn't run her own life. Anybody think that's possible? Anybody ever experienced that personally? You want to give me some testimonies of when you failed like this? You don't have to, but I'll give you one. But I'll take you all the way back to my junior high days so that you will think that I never think like this anymore. So, in, in West Virginia where I grew up, Friday night football was huge. 
And it, so Friday night, I wanted to always go to the Friday night high school football games. But on one particularly Friday night, we had a church revival service that was going on. And my parents said to me, we're not going to the football game, we're going to church. And I didn't want to go. And so I said to them, you never let me do anything I want to do. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh, not only me, and I knew you were susceptible, I, I, or in our homes. Now, it wasn't really true. My parents did not do that. It's just there was something that I wanted to do that I didn't want to be kept from. I wanted to control my own life. I kept thinking if I keep th their rules, it will ruin my life. Uh, and with that sort of happening in Eve's mind, the serpent saw an opening and he went after it and he said, Eve, you could be like God. You, you don't have to be under him. No curfews, no limitations, no rules. So it seems to me that's where it began, with an attitude of making the Bible's command seem silly and out of date, and it opened up her heart toward disobedience, and I think it still happens today. Uh, may I have, yeah. These sermons are sometimes dry, so you need to, yeah. Okay. That brings me to the next point that I want you to think about, the specific attack that the servant used uh, that furthered the temptation. Verses 4 and 5, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You, you've got to know, I mean, Eve already, Eve already knew good. Maybe an experience of evil was the only thing he could offer. But I want you to notice this. What the serpent went after is not what we might have expected him to go after. He didn't try to get her to deny the existence of God, did he? Because Eve knew that God existed. She had been walking with him. And you and I do too, who come to church. He, he didn't also go after the holiness of God. By that I mean he didn't try to come and say, you know, as I hear so often in, here, here in Southern California, you know, God, if there's a God, he's too big to really care about how you live. He wouldn't give you moral commands. He didn't go after that. You know why? Because Eve already knew that God did care about how she lived. He had given her a moral command. So what did he go after? I want you to make note of this. If you've been zoning out, zone in right now. What the serpent attacked was God's goodness. Will you make note of that? Essentially, he said, Eve, you can't trust that what God is asking you to do can possibly be good for you. His rule will keep you from happiness. And that attack went deep into her heart. And I've just got to tell you, in my many years of being a pastor, I have come to the conviction that when God's people give in to temptation, it almost always begins with an attack on whether God's way is really good. I could give a thousand illustrations, could be the whole sermon, I don't think I have to do it. I'll just give you a couple. We could say, um, oh, here's what God says about how I should use my money, but this is what I really want to do. I tell you what, if I win the lottery, I'll do some of that, but I'm going to do this, and we go our own way. Or maybe much more often here, we think, I know God's word tells me that I should not be having sex with that person because sex is supposed to be within 
the covenant vow of a marriage and it should be between a man and woman, but boy, I want to do that. And in our world, there's this thing, you, you can't flourish unless you control that part of your life. You can't be happy unless you make the You can't give God control of that part of your life. Do you see what it is? It's undermining any notion that what God asks you to do is good. Are, are you with me here? It's why I so often preach to you that Jesus did not give his life to ruin yours. He gave his life so you can, so you can really live. And the question we always have when temptation comes, is God good? See, so like Eve, I think for us mostly the, the desire to disobey God starts when we think we can't trust God to make us happy. Today I say to you, I, I want you to look at the temptations that you face most often to the places that you, you feel tempted to go. It might be websites. It could be so many things. Look at that. And I think one of these first two points might be at play. You might think that what you see in the Bible is out of date and really isn't relevant. Or number two, you might think that God isn't really good and going your own way rather than his is what will make you happy, will make you flourish. Are you with me? Which brings me then to the act of the will that was the sin, the decision that was made. Verse 6, the woman took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her. Where has this guy been this whole time? There he was, right? And he ate it. I'll tell you, 21st century people read this account of what we call the fall of the human race and how this has affected everything. And they say, what was so bad about that sin? I mean, eating a piece of fruit. What's so bad about that? And then you pick up your Bible and read in Genesis 3, and I'll tell you, it's hard to find out what God thought was so bad about eating a piece of fruit. Instead, what you see in the Bible is that people were simply called to acknowledge that God is God, that He is God, we are not God, and then to obey God's command. I want you to see, God didn't say, I want you to obey this if it makes sense to you. Essentially, what He said is this, I am God. Uh, your very life is a gift from me to you. To Adam and Eve, he would have said, being in paradise and all those joys, that's a gift from me to you. To us, he would say, look at all the blessings that I give to you. They're all a blessing that comes from his hand. In other words, God is saying, I love you. I know how I've made you to live. I am God. Now, I'm going to tell you how you're supposed to live. Don't eat that one piece of fruit from the middle of the garden. That's what's going on here. And they had a decision to make. See, they were made in God's image. So when a choice came to them, they had a real choice to make in the face of temptation, didn't they? And so do you and I. God had only asked them for one thing. And yet, when I read this thing, it just seems like, though they were made in the image of God, living in a paradise, when the temptation came, they didn't resist at all. I mean, it was a surrender without a struggle. Just think about being there. You'll enjoy it, said the tempter. We will, thought the people. You want it, said the tempter. We do, thought the people. You can get by with it. We can, thought the people. It's a ridiculous rule anyway, said the tempter. 
It is, said the people. And then they gave in. And so, like them, you and I give in. Though you come to church and hear what God calls and asks of you, we give in when the temptation comes. So this is what I want us to do. You know, we have the blessing up in the balcony. You don't have this, but those of you who can kneel, we have kneelers there in the bench in front of you. I think this is a time for us to stop and ask the Spirit of God, don't you think, to show us, open our hearts and minds to say, this is where I'm feeling temptation. So I'll put a question up here. What is the fruit that I am tempted to eat at this point in my life? Where are the places that I've been feeling strong temptation? Maybe you can even ask, Father, where have I been giving in? And as the music team comes and they sing a song that tells us, Lord, I need you in the midst of this time of temptation. I want you to confess those things to God. Ask him to show you those things, but acknowledge them and that they are wrong. Bring them to him. And after the song is over, then Matt is going to come and bring you some really good news. Jesus. 
Jesus, you're my hope and stay. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I Brothers and sisters, God's word in 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't get too comfortable. We're going to stand for another reading of God's word, so if you're able, please do so. Let's look at Genesis 3, 7 through 21 together. Genesis 3, 7 through 21. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil will you eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God 
made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we've talked about the atmosphere that produces temptation, the attack of the tempter, and we've talked about the willful act of sin. I want to talk about how do we respond when we sin? One way is to confess our sin, which we've done, which we've begun to do. But, but in Genesis 3, verses 7 through 13, we see how the first humans responded. They, they sewed fig leaves together to hide their nakedness and their shame. They hid from the Lord. And then they played the blame game. She, she it's her fault. And Eve says, it's the serpent's fault. No one willing to take, take things on themselves. You know, social scientists like sociologists and psychologists define shame like this. They say that shame is social pain that comes from knowing that we have dishonored something or someone that we love or respect. I really like that idea, social pain. You see that in Adam and Eve's story, right? They have dishonored God and they feel a social pain between them and him as a result. And so they need to find a way to cope with that pain. And what do they do? They shoddily sew together some fig leaves. That's the best that they could do. And so they do it. Now, don't we cope with shame in similar kinds of ways? Maybe we're not seamstress of leaves, I don't know. But, but we probably find our own ways to cope with shame, don't we? Maybe we work too much so that we don't have time to think about our shame that we might feel. Maybe we have these elaborate hobbies that fill all of our time. And they're really pretty silly if you think about them. I bet all of us have something in that, in that vein. Maybe we fill our lives with mindless entertainment so that we can be dumbed down and not have to think about those things. Maybe our life is full of addictions and other things that help us cope with our shame. Friends, we could begin a cottage industry of fig leaves, like Fig Leaves LLC or something. We're so good at this. We're so very good at this. So we, we create things that cope with our shame, but we also still try to hide from God just like Adam and Eve did. They went and hid from God in the garden that he made. He knew every nook and cranny, and they hid from him. It's, it's pretty silly when we think about how, how when, when we run from God too, the, the ridiculous futility in trying to hide from a God who's omnipresent. He knows he is everywhere and he's omniscient. He knows everything. How are we going to hide from him? And yet we try. When we feel that sense of shame, sometimes we might stop praying. We might stop attending religious functions and stop going to our small group and other sorts of things in vain hopes that God will somehow forget what we've done that we can hide from him in some way. But we also do just like Adam and Eve, don't we? Where we pass the buck. We do that. We do that all the time. When we disobey, we're tempted to hide. We're tempted to cope with our shame. But we're also tempted to blame other people. We do this all the time. We say things like, it's someone else's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's the people who work under me. It's their fault. We say things like, well... The devil made me do it. You might think I'm pretending, but people still say that. And, and, and you might say something like, we might all say something like, well, it, it's really my upbringing that caused me to do this and behave this way. You know, it's, everything's our parents' fault anyway, right? And, and as a parent, that's really scary. Uh, but, but we also say something a little scarier to me is we say, well, I was just born this way. We're, we're really blaming God there, aren't we? And sometimes we're a little less obvious. We're caught in a lie and we say, well, I was given faulty information. Or we say something rude to someone and we say, well, you're, it was just a joke. 
You're being too sensitive, which is a way of passing the buck. We find all kinds of ways to not take, not, not take our sins seriously. And all of these responses are natural to us. They're part of our human nature. It's really easy for us to wag our finger at Adam and Eve and say, man, you messed everything up for everybody. But just like Greg said, wouldn't we have done the same? The answer, of course, is yes, we would have. And, and we see this through the work of social scientists. Now, when we think of science in Genesis 1 through 3, we almost always first think about things like cosmology and astronomy, biology, geology, maybe even anthropology. But social science can help us understand these things too. Here's an example. In 1966, Jack Brim introduced into the literature a, a, an idea called reactance theory. And here's the way he defined it. When we perceive that our freedom is going to be taken away due to a command or a restriction, we often break that very command as an effort to reassert our freedom. Okay, in less nerdy language. Don't press that button, but I want to press the button. I'm going to show that I can press the button. <laughs> we do that. The classic study is they, they encouraged people not to think about a white bear. And then they had them talk for five minutes. And on average, every person in those five minutes talked about white bears at least once every minute. When we're told not to do something, we're more likely to do it. The research is showing this over and over and over again. And, and we learn other things from social scientists. We learn this thing called avoidance coping. So when we face a stressor such as shame or guilt, we often cope by trying to avoid in different kinds of ways. And this fits with, with what Adam and Eve did too. They tried to cope with their shame by doing what? By running away, by blaming others. Okay, let me give you an example from my life as a parent. My oldest son's name is Myron. He's two years old now. This story happened when he was 16 or 17 months old. In our, in our dining area, there's a beverage cart. And on that beverage cart is a coffee maker that's almost always full of hot coffee. I'm a graduate student, I have multiple jobs, I have two little kids, I have to have my coffee. <laughs> and, and Myron had been told not to touch the beverage cart. So he would go up to it and he would play with something on it and I would say, Myron, don't touch that. And he would stop and he'd go off. He didn't know that I was watching him though and he was playing with something else and he saw the beverage cart. It's like that red button and he saunters over to it. He doesn't know I'm watching. And with his little toddler finger, he touches it. And I say, Myron, stop, don't touch that. And he pulls his finger back. And in that moment, my 16 or 17 month old child literally pretended he didn't do it. He pretended he did not just touch the beverage cart. We learn this kind of behavior from, I learn it, it's just part of who we are from the very, very earliest days. While all these sorts of behaviors that we've talked about are natural responses, these are not the only responses available to us as followers of Jesus, are they? We can respond to sin in different kinds of ways, can't we? We've done one. We've confessed. Friends, we are indwelt by the Spirit who can empower us to live in ways in accordance to Him instead of our human nature. We can walk in step with Him and live life synced to His instead of our human fallenness and our flesh. Friends, we can face up to our temptations. We can admit our sins and we can stop passing the buck and own what we've done and ask for forgiveness. We need to be reminded too that actions in this world have consequences. We see this in Genesis 3, 14 through 19, where God curses the serpent and the ground and gives consequences to the man and the woman, to Adam and Eve. Now this disobedience the, the disobedience of the man and woman is what led to these curses and consequences. And these, these curses and consequences worked to undo 
the right relationships we talked about last week in Genesis chapter 2. So God curses the serpent and says to him, there's going to be enmity. There's, you're you're going to have problems between you and the woman from now on. And we've seen that. This, the, the devil, the tempter, keeps trying to get between us and God. Breaking the relationship again and again that we have with God. Making it unright and not all that it was intended to be. Then when God speaks to the woman, he says, your relationship with your husband is going to be different than it was before. And there's probably going to be friction because of that. The relationship that we have with one another is not all that it was intended to be. It's broken and it's messed up. And he says to the man, the land that you worked that was so easy and beautiful and fun to work in the garden is going to be toilsome on the other side of the garden. Our relationship with creation is broken and not all that it should be either. Our actions have consequences. And not just theirs, but ours do too. And these first consequences that from Adam and Eve, they echo down to us today. We see that, don't we? We have broken relationships. We have broken relationships with God, with one another, and with creation. We know that these things echo down. Friends, we are sinners. We're sinners. We're sinners by nature and by choice. We know this. We have inherited Adam and Eve's propensity to sin and their will to sin as well. Here's the way I like to think about it. We sin because we're sinners, and we're sinners because we sin. We are messed up. We are a piece of work, as Denny Valesi used to say. But as followers of Jesus, when we disobey God's commands, we're then free from all kinds of consequences, right? If we're saved, we can do whatever we want, and we don't have to face any consequences here and now, do we? I see some smiles. <laughs> now, we might be free from the eternal consequences, but some of us live like, I can do whatever I want, and because I'm saved, I don't have to pay any prices for it. I can run up my credit card, buying things I don't need to impress people I don't like, and I don't have to pay because I'm saved or something. I don't think the credit cards are going to take that as an excuse, are they? It's faulty to think that just because we're saved, we're immune from consequences. Think back to my son again. Even though I love Myron, I very easily forgave him for touching a piece of furniture. He still had to face some consequences. Yes, they were small. I mean, I talked sternly to him. He's pretty sensitive, so he takes that very personally. And then I had to stop him from playing for a little while, which he didn't like. So he had a little bit of negative consequences in, in, in me disciplining him. But sometimes we operate as if God isn't going to discipline those he loves. The Bible says, firstly, just the opposite. But think about it. If I, who love my son very deeply, am willing to discipline him, God loves us so much more than I love my son. And friends, I love my son a lot. Have you seen him? He's really cute. Uh, but God loves us even more. And he wants to discipline us, to grow us, to help us see how to become conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, all of this feels like a bunch of bad news, and Pastor Greg said I was bringing some good news, so here it comes. Are you ready? We have divine hope for our human frailty. We have divine hope for our human frailty. We see this in Genesis 3:15 and 21. In Genesis 3:15, the earliest church. The earliest followers of Jesus called this the Proto-Evangelium, which is a fancy way of saying the first gospel, or maybe even the first messianic prophecy. Here's how they read it. They said, the offspring of the woman, in that passage refers to Jesus, and that he would have his heel struck by the serpent, and that's a, a reference to the cross. But, but this one would crush the head of the serpent, which is a sign of the, the power of the resurrection, the triumph of the resurrection. Also, it reminds us of Revelation 12, where the dragon is thrown into the fiery pit. 
If this is true, if this interpretation is fair, and I think it's fair if you read the Bible as God's entire redemptive story, if so, then it's pretty amazing to see that from the very beginning of that story, God is placing hints and foreshadowings of the grace he's going to give us through the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son, who, who wants to make us whole and new and renew us, and who will bring to fruition all of this work when he returns triumphantly. I think more poignantly to me, though, is Genesis 3.21, where God makes clothes for Adam and Eve. Now, that might sound trivial, but let's work through it together. Now, they had sewn together some shoddy clothing on their own to cover their, their shame, did they not? They were ashamed of what they did, so they put some fig leaves together to hide their nakedness. God, in his mercy and in his grace, knew that that wasn't going to, to be enough for them. It wasn't going to be enough for them, not only to deal with their shame, but to live well in this world. He needed to remind them that he could help, and so he was going to. Their efforts at coping with their shame simply were not enough. Friends, they needed God. They needed to allow him to assuage their shame, their social pain that existed between him and them due to their sin. Friends, they needed God. Furthermore, God loved them way too much to send them off into the wilds outside the garden, barely being clothed at all. That would not be a thing a loving God would do. They were too vulnerable, barely even not naked. So he protected them by giving them better garments. Here's the good news. God's still in the business of extending the same kind of grace and mercy to us today. He's still doing this. Friends, he sent his son to live the perfect life, which is an example for us. To die a death that we deserved, to be risen on the third day by the power of God, so that in his very body, Jesus would eradicate our shame and our guilt. Praise God. And God has thoroughly protected us for the journey beyond that. By indwelling us with his spirit, so that we can be empowered to do this thing that he wants us to do, living life the way that he wants us to. Think back to my son, Myron. My wife and I have a stated goal for our, we're, we're nerds, I'm sorry, but we have a stated goal for our sons. We want them to grow up to be capable and kind adults who follow Jesus. Now, in order for that to happen, there are going to be negative consequences that are part of that, right? I'm, that's just what a parent partly has to do. But Myron and Smith, my other son, they really need our love and our hope, and our grace, so that, so that they can grow into the people we want them to become. They need that from us, and we are going to do our best to do so, failing along the way, I'm sure. We already have. God has a goal for us, too, a stated goal for us, too. He wants us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, negative consequences, discipline, is going to be part of that process, but it's not going to get us all the way there. We need his grace, we need his mercy. We need his help in order to get where he wants to take us, friends. Do you know his grace and mercy this morning? Do you know it? And if you do, do you remember this morning that you need it? You need it every day. Do you need God's help to assuage the guilt and the shame that might be part of your life? Do you need his help? Today is the day for the first time or the thousandth time to fall into the arms of our Savior who is willing and able to love you. He's willing and he's able. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful that you sent your Son who is willing and able. If he was just willing and unable, 
What good would that be? And if he was able and not willing, it would be capricious. But he is willing and able to love us, and we are grateful for that, God. And we pray that in Jesus' name, we would live lives that are more and more conformed to his image because of your grace, because of your hope, because of your help. In Jesus' name, amen.